0: please be seated. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. This will be the second week in our new series, our study of the book of Galatians. We've titled simply Freedom because that is the overarching theme that permeates that book and the message of that book uh, is what also will bring us freedom, the freedom that we long for, the freedom that we need. We come to the second part, uh, which will begin our reading in verse 11 of chapter 1 this morning. Um, Before we uh, go to the word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we do come with great thanksgiving that you have loved us and have redeemed us and have spoken to us, recording your word through your prophets and your apostles. We pray, Lord, that as we take this time to honor you by lending our ears, that it would also be a time that you shape us, renewing our hearts and our minds that would be in conformity with what you have declared, that we might behold and to see how glorious you are and the grace that is given to us in Christ, that we may see our own tendencies to wander and at the same time not be afraid to deal with it because you have loved us even when we were unworthy. Father, speak to us, for your word promises that it will always bear fruit and shape our hearts and therefore our lives more and more to reflect and to honor Christ, that our worship would not only be in giving ourselves to the attention, but lived out day to day, that we may honor you. We pray all of this for your glory and the joy that is ours when we live in you. We pray in Christ. Amen. Galatians chapter 1, verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. May the Lord give us understanding from his word. One of the early explorers to the North Pole uh, charted uh, his course, charted his journey on an hourly basis to make sure that he stayed on course as he navigated through that white, wet, white uh, icy wasteland. But as he was traveling for uh, a while, something surprising occurred to him. He realized at one point that where he presently was as he was traveling at what he thought a pretty good clip toward the north, on course toward the North Pole, his instruments were telling him that he nevertheless was further south than he had been an hour ago. Not sure of what this was and rechecking his instruments and continuing on his course and increasing his clip He checked his instruments again in another hour and realized that he was even further south than he had been before, even though he was moving in the right direction, moving at a strong steady clip. As he was going north, he was finding himself further south. He eventually realized that what had happened as he had stepped upon and become part of a, a huge iceberg that had broken off from the other parts of the land And that as he was making his journey north on this iceberg, unbeknownst to him, the iceberg was traveling south at a rate faster than he was traveling north. Now, the reason this is important for us to recognize is because it reminds us that there is a world of difference between activity and progress. And this is true for day-to-day life, even as much as it is true for an Arctic expedition. And it's true for those who are embarking on a Christian journey towards the celestial city, as much as it is for anybody who is living in day-to-day life. We can be busy, we can be active, but that's not necessarily an indication that change or goals are being achieved. The only way that we can see things change is if we ourselves change, and then we are making progress in our lives. And yet all of us can probably testify that we know that change comes hard. Comedian George Carlin, who, at least when my oldest son was a child, who doubled his role as uh, Mr. Conductor in uh, Shining Time Station, um, one time noted that he put a dollar into one of those change machines, and he said, but nothing changed. And all of us have experienced the same thing. We may be looking for something magical, something to happen, but it just comes difficult even when we give ourselves to change we experience almost the same exp- thing that the Arctic Explorer did many people make New Year's resolutions so if you are like Americans elsewhere we realize that 53 percent of you made New Year's resolutions and that doesn't include those of you who made the resolution to make no resolutions which is a resolution but nevertheless people make their resolutions every year and they begun tracking how well people do and how long people keep their resolutions. And the good news is that at this point in time, 75% of you have probably kept your resolutions. 75% of people keep their resolutions through the first week of January. It sounds like good news until you realize 25% of people that make resolutions don't even make it out the first week. Now. It still remains good, but 71% of the people, you're safe for another few days because 71% of people are able to maintain their resolutions through two weeks, which does mean 30% of the people who are committed to changing, having given thought to what needs to change in their life, dedicated themselves to it, they thought enough to make this resolution and within two weeks, 30% are no longer pursuing. The change has become too difficult or too frustrating and they have failed. 64% of the people make it through a month, and just 46% of the people that make resolutions can make it as far as six months. I didn't see any statistics beyond that. But it's an interesting reminder to us that no matter how committed to change we are, no matter how much we know that certain things need to change, change is hard, which is why we keep on falling off at ever-increasing rates. We recognize that change doesn't come easy. We work and we work and we realize we just don't seem to be getting anywhere. Jerry Bridges, who's an author, used to be with the Navigators. He calls this phenomenon, particularly when we are trying to change and grow in our spiritual lives, the the uh, the um, tread being on a performance treadmill. In other words, we realize there's things that we want to do, and we commit ourselves, we endeavor, and we work and we work and we work, but we aren't getting anywhere. And the harder we work, we get nowhere further. We still recognize that we are broken, that we are needy, and in some cases that we are are helpless. No matter how hard the treadmill, you never outrun your treadmill. And again, most of us have experienced that. I was reading not long ago um, an article written by Harvard professor John Cotter, who is a noted expert in organizational change. And while not dealing with anything spiritual uh, at all, in, at least in this particular article, and I have no reason to believe that he is a believer at all, what he noted about organizational change, which happens also because of individual and personal change, was this People change what they do less because they are given an analysis that shifts their thinking than because they are shown the truth that influences their feelings. In other words, people don't change because we know we need to change, no matter how systemic or how much we've been given the data to tell us that we need to change. The thing that changes us more often than the knowledge that we need to is being given a picture of something that is true that is greater than our reality, and we are drawn to that picture, and as we are drawn to that, then we make changes accordingly as we are in the process towards something. And again, while Cotter, I'm quite certain, had no spiritual implications in mind, I can't think of anything that would be a better description of the life of the Apostle Paul as he describes himself here in this portion of the book of Galatians. Since we come to Galatians 1.11, we find the beginning of Paul's autobiographical portion of this letter. Really comes in two parts. We'll look at the first part of it through the end of this chapter today. And then it continues again and picks up from chapter two and it runs through uh, chapter two, verse 14. That Paul is just telling his own story, his own story of transformation, his own journey. And in that story, he reminds us and shows us of how the gospel itself brings the power to change. How when Paul saw the Christ, appearing to him on the road to Damascus, saw what true godliness was, it changed everything in him. Even at that time when he wasn't desiring to change, wasn't intending to change, it changed his life, it changed his outlook, it changed everything, it changed his affections, his emotions, everything changed, and as Paul tells the story here, he shows us what transformation, progress, growth, spiritual growth looks like at every phase along the way. And that's what I want to look at this morning, but before we do, I also need to acknowledge that Paul's primary intent in this section is not to write a how-to chapter on how to change. Paul is actually defending the gospel here from a, a people who had heard it, embraced it, and then thought it was nice, but it needed some sprucing and added things to it. Paul, as we saw last week, says, look, you're embracing another gospel, and there is no other gospel You, by adding to the gospel or taking away from the gospel, you are changing the gospel, which then means it is no gospel whatsoever. And Paul is defending the gospel that has changed him, knowing that it is the only hope for the Galatians to experience the change that they desire. It's also the only hope for transformation that you and I desire as well. Now, I also understand that there are many ways that people change. There are beautiful stories of people who used to be in this situation or used to do these things, and now they no longer do. And those things are wonderful, and I don't want to minimize those. But what Paul is talking about is growth in godliness, growth in Christlikeness. And while sometimes we may be able to discipline ourselves and change our circumstances or change our behaviors, growth in godliness can never happen through self-help. It always requires God's grace. And Paul says that the means of that is the power of the gospel. It changed him. It would change others. And so while he's defending not only the gospel itself but his own apostolic authority because people began questioning whether he was on equal part with the other uh, uh, apostles. Or, you know, his message might be nice, but we don't need to necessarily take it seriously. We'll listen, we'll consider it. But it's just one idea among many that we're hearing. Paul is defending the message and his authority as an apostle. And he does that in the very beginning when he says, Look, I want you to know the gospel I preached is not man's gospel. It's not something that I received from any man. I wasn't taught it, but I received it directly from Jesus Christ. He's affirming the message and his authority, not because he's petty. But because what he has to say and what God has commissioned him to say is what we need to hear. And so as we look at this um, story that Paul shares with us of his own personal and spiritual journey, I want us to take note of how God is at work in him because it's how God is at work in us or in anyone. Whether you are one who is in need of change or whether you are trying to encourage others to be uh, changed, as we understand how God works, we are able to see the change in ourselves and encourage others in that change as well. So we're going to look at this in three different sections. We're going to consider Paul in his pre-converted state. We're going to consider Paul at conversion, and we'll consider Paul having already been converted, but in his journey and his walk with Christ. And for all who are in Christ, we share all of those elements. For all who are seeking, you are in the first stage, and we would love to see you in the others. And so we hope that this will be an encouragement to you. But we'll begin with Paul's pre-conversion, a time where I would just say Paul, as he's writing now, recognized that he was in need of grace. Now, as we begin, it's important for us to recognize that people try to relate to God in different ways. We can probably put them in two categories, although there's innumerable expressions of it. One way we might say is kind of like from an inward affirmation. This means that Somebody has essentially their own set of standards, their own ideals, their own inner voice, their own feelings. And if they feel they're good or good enough or better than most, then they're good or good enough or better than most. And if they're good enough for you or they're good enough for themselves, then they must be good enough for God. They just have a relatively apathetic approach. Whatever they feel tends to be the gauge as to whether or not God is pleased with them. One of the most vivid illustrations of that that I have seen recently is when I read an interview that Woody Allen had some time ago with uh, an interviewer for a magazine. Most of you here probably know who Woody Allen is, a tremendous, g- tremendously gifted director whose lifestyle and lifestyle choices became so scandalous that he even made the people in Hollywood blush. They didn't want to hang out with him anymore, particularly as he had been found to have engaged in an inappropriate relationship with his stepdaughter. Even Hollywood turned their back on him at that time, and the interviewer was bringing that subject up to Woody Allen and saying, these are the allegations, and it's essentially they've been proven true. How do you, how do you live with yourself? How do you sleep at night? And Woody Allen's response was, well, the heart wants what the heart wants. In other words, he considered his actions to be perfectly appropriate by his standards, realizing other people have other standards, but the other standards he assumed were just arbitrary, and his behavior, therefore, met his qualification. Why should he deny what his heart wants? Other people pursue what their heart wants, and so he sleeps with himself just fine because his heart does not condemn him. That would be the example of somebody who, despite whatever they choose to do, despite even what society as a whole says, they seem fine, they assume that they're accepted simply on the basis that they feel fine and they think that they ought to be accepted. I don't know if most people, but many people need more than just their own sense of feeling. They need some sort of external affirmation. And they can find that through tradition or through religion, which sets up a system of practices, beliefs that we can check off. So that we know that if we check off enough boxes or we check off the right boxes, we can say, I'm good. Or if we fail, we see where we need to improve. Or if we see others whose boxes need to be checked, we realize they're not good. They need to become better. And then we relate to them in a number of different ways. The Apostle Paul clearly fell into the second category as he tells us about his own life before his conversion in the text here. Paul, as he's describing himself, beginning in verse 13, says, For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God and violently, uh, violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond uh, many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. And Paul's demonstrating that uh, something about his character there. And as I read What Paul writes about himself here and his other story as he records it elsewhere. One of the things that comes to mind is that if I or if you met Paul in this pre-conversion period of his life. We probably wouldn't like him very much. For one reason since most of you here are professing Christians he was trying to kill you. That does put a damper on most relationships when somebody wants you dead and is taking active measures to see that happen. But another reason, and I'm not sure even less ugly, is just the way you would likely feel when you are around him. I mean, Paul describes himself here and elsewhere. I mean, he's talking about The intensity uh, that he lived his life, just constant intensity and energy. Self-righteousness, he describes that. I was advancing. I had a zeal for the traditions more than everybody else. And I knew what was right and I was doing what was right. He was driven for a cause. And he was driven and motivated by making a name for himself. All of those are characteristics that are put together in a package. Make somebody very unbecoming to be around. I don't know if you know anybody that's like that but they're just constantly on edge and you can never relax and you're never measuring up or you just wonder what they're thinking of you. And they're always, just always on and it's always self-focused, self-absorbed. Even if they're speaking to you, it's about them. Everything is about them. And so Paul would be a, a, a tremendously unattractive person to be around at that time. And yet all of that changed after Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus paul looks back at his own life and realizes everything that he considered to be of vital importance everything that he was striving for everything that he was doing was worthless so as he describes to the philippians and talking about his life and he's really challenging other people elsewhere that actually live their lives that way. People who are proclaiming Christians, professing Christians, that existed in Philippi, exist in Williamsburg, existed at Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church, that measure their lives on the basis of how many boxes are checked, and assuming they're good because the boxes are checked, or that other people need to improve because they're not checking the same boxes. Paul challenges those people when he's writing to Philippi and saying, hey, you think you've got reason to be proud? You think you've checked the boxes? Hey, as far as the law went, I was flawless. As far as zeal, I was persecuting the church. Whatever you think you've got, I have more reason to boast in those things. And now you know what I think of everything I did? It was rubbish. It was dung. That's what it's worth. See, Paul had been transformed because he had the vision of Jesus Christ and realizing that in his pre-converted state, No matter what he thought he had achieved, no matter how good he thought he was, he now was able to see what he really was was greatly in need. And it's a reminder to us that before coming to Christ, or even when we are in Christ, that the only thing we need in order to have a relationship with God is nothing. Or as Tim Keller says, the only thing we need is need. Need. Now, our problem is a lot of us don't have nothing. We don't know that we have the need. And we continually, no matter what our doctrine says, no matter what we profess, we continue to assume ourselves to either be good or failing on the basis of the boxes that are checked or our own feelings and our own emotions. And Paul is reminding us by his own story, his own experience, that even if you could succeed beyond all others, you are still greatly in need and you cannot be right with God based on what you do and what you do not do. It's not that what you've done is all evil and all bad, at least in the economy that we live, in the day-to-day way that we live. But we're not gauging on our daily economy and the way that we live, we're gauging on the relationship to God. And all of our good works, when we forget that everything that we do, everything we're striving for, all the change we're trying to muster, either in ourselves or the culture around us, everything we are sh- shooting for is about as valuable as Confederate money. Now, there's nothing wrong with Confederate money. I've seen some of the bills that get quite pretty, as, uh, at least as money goes, colorful. And you can collect as much as you want, but it is worthless if you try to spend it in any of the world's economies. Effort, zeal, diligence, at least as Paul was describing it, is like Confederate money. It is worthless in the economy of God. Paul recognized that. And he testifies about the change that takes place in his life that what God has done and brought transformation and so now we look second about God's work of saving grace in Paul's life and one of the first things that we need to know about Paul which is true universally is this one of the first things that needs to go when we are converted to Christ is religion with its system of merits and demerits by which we measure ourselves and by which we measure others when I was in youth ministry in, in Knoxville before going to seminary, we, I had, uh, benefit of having, had, had the pleasure of having two brothers that were extraordinary in many ways that were in my Bible study. The older brother went to West Point and four years later graduated as the valedictorian. That's pretty impressive anywhere. To me, that seems incredibly impressive to do at West Point with the caliber of the students that get in there and the discipline with which they have to uh, carry themselves while they're there. He graduated as valedictorian. His younger brother, two years younger, wasn't quite as successful when he went to West Point, at least not academic. He ended up ninth in his class, but he was playing varsity soccer all the time as well. But what was extraordinary about the younger brother, his name was David, is that when after his junior year, there was an article in the Knoxville newspaper about David. Apparently, David had come through three years of being at West Point without having earned one demerit during his time at West Point. And the article indicated that uh, that it was astounding, that there was only one other person in the history of that institution that had gone that far without earning a demerit, and that was Robert E. Lee. Robert E. Lee managed to go all four years and graduated without any demerits. David, I guess, decided to not be compared to Robert E. Lee for the rest of his life, and he just earned a, a few demerits his senior year. But still, it's an incredibly impressive statistic to indicate you've gone this far and the only one other person in the history, and that's a man of the character of Robert E. Lee. You and Robert E. Lee, you're the only one in this fraternity. Well, that's been a while. David's in the working world now. And do you know what his record of no demerits being on par with Robert E. Lee for three years is worth in the workplace? Nothing. I mean, it's a nice story. It might be testimony to his character and to diligence, but unless he continues, it doesn't count anything. It's nothing but a story. Systems of merits and demerits amount to nothing. Not only at West Point, not only in life, but in our relationship to God. It is all about grace, and that's what the Apostle Paul recognizes. That's what he declares, and that's what he wants us to understand. Now, Paul's transformation takes place in this, and it's true for him, and it's true for all of us. We see a change taking place as he's writing this letter. We recognize that he becomes aware of what he thought was good and righteous, he recognizes now as sin. See, so he describes himself in saying, I persecuted the church. I was zealous beyond others and recognizing, and he's telling it in a way that we understand he knows that it's just selfish ambition. And he recognizes that is sin, no matter what good things he did, no matter how well-intended he was toward God, he himself recognizes that even at his best, he was a sinner. And yet the mark of his transformation is not simply the recognition of our sinfulness, of his sinfulness, but that his focus is no longer on himself, whether succeeding or failing, but his attention now turns to God. And we see that as he writes here, and he says things in this particular passage, Chosen by God before my own birth. Called by his grace. And God revealed his son to me. Paul was standing amazed, no longer looking at himself, but in his transformation, in his converted state, God becomes the object of his attention. God becomes the object of his, affection, of his affections. And he stands amazed. And he also reveals to us some things that we need to understand that are both true for our own growth and the growth of everyone. Number one in what Paul is saying when he's saying that it's God who called me before I was even born, it's a reminder to us that grace and God's relationship with God is God's initiative and God's intervention. It's not somebody one day waking up and say, I think I need God. Now, we may feel that way, but it's because God has been at work since before we were born. And his providence in bringing us to that point where we are able to see what he has revealed. It is an intervention sometimes, much like some of you may have experienced or seen on TV, where somebody in the family, either because of drugs or alcohol or some other issue, where they're not acting rationally and need to be stopped so they don't hurt themselves or others. Where They gather the person together, they confront so that they're dealt with and they can't escape. That's what God is doing. And that's what Paul is saying he did with him when Jesus confronted him on the road. He also says that it's a reminder, it's God's eternal plan. God doesn't just react like we do to the circumstances. But Paul is saying, God took the initiative before I was even born. You know, few people earn a lot of merit before they're born. They may not earn the demerits that we get afterwards, but they don't earn anything. God chose him before and had a purpose for him. And Paul is declaring the sovereignty of God, and then he says, and he called me by His gracious calling. And the whole idea that Paul says it was grace indicates that it was undeserved. And the calling itself is important for us to recognize because this is how God works and the power of God in the gospel. You see, calling is something that we think about in very general terms. And it's not unlike what we do in our lives. When our kids were younger, I would say time for dinner, come to the table, and most of the time they would get there in their own good time. If we go on a trip, it's even more vivid. I say we want to leave by 8, which in my house, at least in my way of thinking, means 755. In our house, it means 815-ish, 820-ish, but that's only then we go and we have to stop someplace to pick something up and can never, never, never get out of town. People don't seem to understand that when I say 8, I mean 755, and that's a competition. We want to see if we can beat the, de- the thing that's set. So if I said 8, 755, last time we can beat it by 5, next time we want to beat it by 10. Nobody else plays along with my game. I can call, I can call, I can call, and we eventually go, but it's in everybody else's time. But God calls, and it is scripturally, or at least theologically called it effectual, or it's effective. The very calling, the very speaking is doing the work that God desires. God says, let there be light, and there was light. God says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came out. God says, stand up and walk, and the man stands up and walks and takes his mats and walks for the first time. God calls, God speaks, and he is doing the work, not in the good time of the person, but in his own time. Now, we don't necessarily always see that, but when Paul was called before the foundations of the earth, before his his birth, Scripture says we are called, who are in Christ, are called before the foundations of the earth. God is calling And that very calling, his word, is preparing our hearts and the conditions that he would bring us to him. Change and conversion happens because of God's initiative, God's intervention, God's grace, and God's power. God's power is manifested through the gospel. But what's also amazing to me is that God's work is not finished at the point of our conversion. But Paul, as he testifies here, talks a lot about what happened after he had been called and was walking with God and engaging in ministry. And I don't have time to deal with a lot of the details here, but we'll look at it in a broad category. And there is uh, a couple of details that are important for us to recognize. I think most importantly is this, as Paul makes a declaration that Christ dwells within him. In other words, the power of God is at work even in those who are already believers. Now, we might say, I know. But functionally speaking, many of us, or many Christians, are confused on this particular area. There is a mindset that seems to suggest this, is that we know that while we were dead in our sin, dead people don't help much, God had to intervene. But now that we've been made alive, any change that takes place in my life now is up to me. God's given me instruction manual, I just need to follow And if that's the case, then there really would seem to be no reason for Christ to need to take up residence. He'd be the jailer who set you free. Go free, sin no more. But Paul testifying that it is Christ who dwells within him indicates that the power of God and his grace does not stop being at work within us once we are converted, but it continues to be at work within us, and we are in need of him to be continually at work within us if we are going to see the change that we want. Again, there are many ways to change, but to grow in godliness requires God to be at work within us and to God to change our hearts and to God to draw us to himself, which is a means of conforming us to himself. God himself promised that when we are told, he who began a good work in you has promised that he will see it through until the end. And Paul, as he's writing to the Colossian church, kind of expressing his own story, but giving a, a, a more of an instruction at that point, and says, just as you received him, that's how you live in him. We have to ask ourselves, how do we receive him? As those who are in need, that are unable to uh, do enough or to change ourselves, believing in the grace that is offered and demonstrated in Christ, and the power of the gospel that is bringing life to all who are believing. Paul says this is the process of change. That at all times we are in need. And God is more gracious than we know. And God has made a promise. And God is at work. And we, as God's people, need to constantly remind ourselves of what he has done. I'm going to finish up with this because Paul's statement, I had a great illustration I don't have time for, but we'll work it in some other time, even if it doesn't fit. But anyway, it's too long to tell. But I will say this. Paul says that the last thing in this chapter is really, to me, is an amazing, amazing thing because he's talking about the other churches who he hadn't yet met. All they knew was that this guy who had been persecuting the church no longer was. He's proclaiming the faith. And Paul says in verse 24, and they glorified God because of me. Now, it's easy to look at that passage and say, what an arrogant statement. You know, but I guess it's okay because he's an apostle. Except Paul is not being arrogant at all at this point. He's actually, there's a great deal of humility and reality in this. Because what Paul is saying is, look, they know what I am. And now they know what I'm doing. And the only way that that's going to happen is recognizing that God is at work and God's grace is at work. And God's grace has brought transformation. That I have been transformed by the gospel. And while they may still be somewhat skeptical and they don't know me personally, The only answer is the power of God is at work in me to make me what I was, to what I am, and to what I will be. And they stand amazed and say, God, I thank you for what you have done. Because Paul is not saying, I am the example. Paul is saying, I am a trophy of God's grace. When anybody sees Paul in his life, they realize it is the work of God. And Paul is just a living trophy of that grace. Now, the reason that that's important for you and for me is that Paul's story is only extraordinary in a few details. Paul was a terrorist and so far as I know most of you are not. And Paul is an apostle and I know you are not. But other than that the generalities of Paul's story are your story and my story if we are in Christ. Because we are a people that were in need and are in need. We are a people who have seen a picture before us that is so compelling that we need that and change happens as we go towards Christ rather than check off the checklist. And we are people within whom Christ is dwelling now if we are believing in him. And so just as Paul is a trophy of God's grace and that people are praising God because of them, so you as well are trophies of God's grace and that people will praise God and give thanks to God because of you as they see your life, as they hear your story. And what I want is for you to consider Paul's story and the whole dynamic of how change takes place and realizing that you're not done yet and God's not done with you yet. But to see your life and to see your story and to understand your story in light of the grander narrative that God is doing through of redeeming the world to himself. And to recognize that as important as Paul's chapter is, your chapter is every bit as important to the people who are around you to the others that are in this church, to your neighbors to know your story, that you need to know your story and you need to be able to tell your story and you need to be able to be amazed as you consider how important your story is. And when you do that, you will see that your story is ongoing, that you are in need of God and that you are a means by helping others as well. Paul was called in order to proclaim the mercies of Christ. And so are you and me. God is at work. Trust his work. Long for his work. Liquidate anything that you think you deserve and stand amazed at God who loves you and see your chapter in his narrative. Father, I do praise you and I thank you for the work that you have done in my life, in the life of the people who are here. I thank you for the work that you will do in the lives of those who may not yet belong to you, but yet belong to your, are part of your fold that you are calling even now. Help us to understand that it is you who is at work. That We respond, that we may have very real characteristics, strengths, weaknesses, brokenness, but all of those are being worked by you for your glory for our good and the good of those around us. Father, may we rejoice and trust and rest in your sovereign mercy, now and always. We pray in Christ. Amen.